For our text this morning, we'll continue where Brother Tom left off. Luke chapter 19, we'll read verses 39 through 44. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that I, if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes, for the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, encompass thee round, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave, thee, leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. This day is what we commonly refer to as Palm Sunday. It's a day that's been celebrated for years in the account that we read about. In my margin, and probably in many of yours, it describes it as the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem, and it was a triumphal entry, as we read about and heard about. This was a day of rejoicing. This wasn't just a spontaneous or a random occurrence where people just rose up and began to praise the Lord. It may have seemed that way to many in the crowd, but in fact, this was a fulfillment of Scripture. This was a day that God had predicted and foreordained and prophesied that would happen some 500 years before that event actually took place. In Zechariah, we read, it says, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, and he is just and having salvation, and lowly and riding upon a donkey, and a colt, the foal of a donkey. So we can see this day was foreordained by God himself. We also recognize in these verses the divine nature of Jesus. He had foreknowledge that others in the crowd didn't have that day. We know as he told his disciples to go into a village, he said, you'll find a colt tied that's never been ridden. Loose him and bring him. And when you're asked, what are you doing? Tell him that the master hath need of him. And verse 32 says, and they that were sent went their way and found even as he had said unto them. So we see the truth of God's word being fulfilled here. This was a day the Lord would be praised. Of course, there are always those who will try to thwart the plan of God, who will try to prevent God's plan from happening. We have the good old Pharisees. They must have been a joy to have at celebrations and parties. They said, Master, rebuke thy disciples. Make them quit. Well, no chance of that happening. I like Jesus' response. He said, I tell you, if they should hold their peace, even the very rocks would cry out. This was a day when Jesus was going to be praised in spite of all their efforts to stop it. Imagine what would happen if Jesus would have turned on the multitudes for just a moment or two and said, okay, everybody hush. And those rocks began to cry out. Somebody once said that would have been the first and only Christian rock concert to ever take place. It could have happened, but it wasn't necessary because 
The people had to praise the Lord. It was ordained and planned by God, and they were just fitting into part of the fulfillment of that prophecy. We know many times when Jesus would do miracles or heal people, he would often tell them to not to make him known, but this day was different. This day Jesus wanted to be known, and he made himself known. It was because it had been foreordained. Just as the Lord said it would be, so it was. Well, we know among this multitude, it was a mixed multitude. All multitudes are. There's different people. There were different people there for different reasons and uh, maybe uh, for diff- had different ideas about who Jesus was. I thought, you know, you could really break that crowd down into two different groups. You had the faithful, forgiven followers, and you had the fair-weather, fickle followers. Both groups made up the multitude that day, but I thought of some of those who quite possibly may have been in the crowd that day. You know, Jesus made some stops on his way to Jerusalem. You know, we read in previous chapters, he passed by Jericho, and there, uh, when he was going through Jericho, he encountered a miserable little tax collector hanging out up in a sycamore tree, hoping to just to get a glimpse, glimpse of Jesus, and he called Zacchaeus down that day, and he said Zacchaeus received him gladly, and Jesus even made the proclamation, today salvation is coming to this man's house. Very possible he might have been in the crowd that day. He would have been among those faithful, forgiven followers. We know he encountered a man by the name of Bartimaeus, referred to as blind Bartimaeus there by the roadside, and as Bartimaeus heard Jesus was passing by, he said he cried out, And I imagine it was probably the Pharisees again who tried to quiet him down, but it said he just cried all the more. Jesus heard, turned, asked him what he wanted, and he requested that the Lord would give him his sight, and Jesus healed him right there on the spot. And that man began to praise the Lord and said he began to follow Jesus at that time. We have the woman in earlier accounts that had been taken in adultery, drug out there before the Lord and all of her humiliation and shame and But rather than condemn her, Jesus forgave her, set her free. He didn't condone her actions, but he forgave her. And he said, go and sin no more. So she must have been one of those that quite possibly was in the crowd that day. We have the account of the ten lepers that Jesus healed and the one that came back and fell at Jesus' feet and worshipped him. And it said his faith had made him whole, not just physically, but spiritually. Pretty good chance he might have been in the crowd that day. That was one group, but then, of course, you had others. You've all heard of a fair-weather friend. I read a story one time about two boys who were out exploring caves, and they came to a cave, and as they entered in, they woke up a hibernating bear, and the bear was enraged and let out a roar, and it began to chase those uh, friends out to the face of the cave there, and as they were heading for the opening of the cave, The one friend dropped to the ground and he pulled off his hiking boots and pulled off his backpack and began to put on his tennis shoes, his running shoes. And the other friend saw this and doubled back, tried to talk some sense to him, said, you're crazy, you're never going to outrun that bear. Well, the friend said, I'm not worried about running the bear, I just need to outrun you. That's the idea of a fair-weather friend. They'll stick around when things are going good, but when difficulties arise or challenges come up, often it's every man for himself. There were a lot of those in the crowd that day. 
You know, in the midst of all of this praise and celebrating, it says that Jesus beheld the city and he wept. It almost seems out of place when you read this account. But there's a reason he wept over the city. He saw those in that crowd that day who would reject him. Those who would never accept him as their savior and their deliverer. He saw the utter destruction that would take place upon many of them and upon the city itself because of the rejection of what he was offering that day. There were plenty there. They had no problem with making Jesus, uh, allowing him to take over their city and even overthrowing their government, but they didn't want him to be the king of their hearts. They wanted Jesus to take care of their problems, but uh, don't worry about taking care of me. I'm fine like I am. There were many in the crowd that day. No doubt he wept over their misguided praise. For centuries, Israel had been looking for a king to, to come and deliver them from Roman oppression. And that's what they thought Jesus would be to them, would be an earthly conqueror. Sadly, they failed to realize they weren't captives because of the Roman government, but because of the sin and disobedience and rebellion in their own hearts and lives. You know, many felt entitled that day. Many wanted God's blessings without the obedience and the sacrifice it requires. That's why Jesus wept. There were too many in the crowd that day like that. There were there those there, no doubt, for, for selfish reasons. We know the several accounts where Jesus fed a multitude with just a few loaves and a few fish. In one account, after feeding 5,000, it says Jesus withdrew himself because the crowd wanted to take him by force and make him their king. You know, there's a lot of people who want to make Jesus what they want him to be. They want to try to somehow manipulate Jesus or fit him into this box. They want him to work in a way they think he should work. Jesus doesn't operate like that. Maybe they thought they could at least get a free lunch out of Jesus every day. We don't know the motive of every person there, but there was a reason why Jesus wept over that city. Jesus didn't come to establish an earthly kingdom. He came to establish an eternal kingdom. He often would remind his own disciples, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. Their focus was on an earthly kingdom. The only problem is earthly kingdoms are subject to corruption and decay. Earthly kingdoms will be overthrown and one day they will perish. But he was looking uh, he was coming to set up a heavenly kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, an everlasting kingdom without end. He was offering them something far better than physical deliverance or an easier life or being free from tribulation or the burden of the Roman government. He was offering them spiritual freedom, something far greater than the world. The world can't offer us that. Christ's deliverance means freedom from the chains of bondage and sin. That freedom means a knowledge of our sins forgiven, free of guilt and condemnation, freedom from fear of death and eternity, freedom of knowing we have peace with God and have a clear conscience between God and man. That's the kind of freedom that Jesus offers, that spiritual freedom. You know, that kind of freedom and liberty, salvation is not 
limited or it has nothing really to do with our external circumstances. You know, you can be physically free, yet spiritually bound. There are people running all over the place, doing whatever they want, thinking they're free, yet if they have, if they're living lives without Christ, they're spiritually bound. You can be physically bound, yet spiritually free. Like I said, this liberty isn't determined by our external circumstances. You read that account in Acts 16 where Paul and Silas were cast into prison. They were beaten and placed in the stocks. Why? Why did that happen to them? They were going about preaching the gospel, doing the Lord's work, and they had delivered a damsel who had a spirit of divination. And as it, uh, the masters, those that, who were exploiting this poor girl, they realized that their uh, way of making money was gone, and so they imprisoned them and had them beaten and threatened. What did they do? Well, it says at midnight they begin to sing and to praise unto the Lord. How could they do that? It's because they had a freedom and a liberty that the enemy could not touch. They were spiritually free, and they began to sing praises unto the Lord at midnight. They've been delivered and set free. Well, the prisoners heard them, but you know what? Jesus heard them. The Lord heard them singing and praising that night. And we see in a moment the whole situation changes completely. It says that an earthquake came and it shook the prison. The doors were opened and every man's bands were loosed. In a moment, the prisoners were free and that jailer became the captive. Well, he wasn't bound by chains but he was bound by fear and dread and hopelessness. At the end, just about ready to pull out a sword and take his own life. But you know what? Jesus didn't leave him in bounds or in bands. He offered him, ca- he offered him freedom from his captivity. We know that Paul called out and said, Sir, do yourself no harm. And it says that man in fear and trembling, he came and he fell at the feet of Paul and Silas. And he asked that all-important question. That question that all of us were going to have to come to grips with at some point in our lives. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Tell me how I can have the same liberty, the same deliverance, the same freedom that you seem to have. Well, they preached Christ unto him. And it says that man, of course, he repented and said he believed on the Lord with all of his heart and with all of his household. And that night, deliverance and salvation came to that man, his entire family. It says that they were all baptized and they rejoiced, believing on the Lord with all their house. You know, we don't know what happened to that jailer from that moment on. Scripture doesn't tell us. Some traditions say he may have gone on to help establish that church there in Philippi. We don't know. We don't know what may have cost him to become a disciple or a follower of Christ. It could have cost him his job, his position. It may have even cost him his life. We don't know. But one thing we do know, he found a freedom that night and a liberty that the world could never offer him. In a moment, he went from despair and utter hopelessness to one of rejoicing. Jesus offers that same liberty today to everyone. In Isaiah 61, verse 1 through 3, it says, Jesus came to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to open the prison to those who were bound, 
I also came to, to warn of coming vengeance, but to comfort those who mourn, to give beauty for ashes, the oil of joy in the place of mourning, a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That's the kind of kingdom Christ came to establish. That's the freedom he offers every single person. He's not speaking about physical deliverance, but about spiritual deliverance and eternal deliverance. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. In Acts 7.48, he said, it tells us the Most High doesn't dwell in a temple made by hands. You know, Jesus isn't looking for an earthly throne to rule and reign from. Jesus wants to be enthroned in our hearts. That's where he wants to establish his eternal kingdom. Luke 17.21, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you. The only way we can be a part of God's kingdom is that we must first allow that kingdom to become a part of us. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3.3, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know, getting into this kingdom is so simple. It really is. People complicate it. You know what it takes? It takes one single honest prayer, From the depth of your heart, a prayer of repentance and genuine surrender. We take ourselves off the throne and we put Christ in its place. When we do that, it says the King of glory will come in. He will establish us in his kingdom. Our names will be written in that Lamb's book of life. It's really so simple. We know it's not like an earthly kingdom. There's a different set of rules and Commandments that govern the kingdom of heaven. Jesus and his kingdom, the way up is down. We have victory through surrender, gain through loss. Paul himself said, I count all things but loss for the excellency of Christ. Strength through weakness. The word of God says his strength is perfect in our weakness. When we realize we are helpless on our own, we can't do anything in our own strength, and we depend on Christ, that's when his strength is perfected in our lives. Somebody once said, the greatness of a man's power is in the measure of his surrender. Certainly that's true when it comes to the kingdom of heaven. You know, we don't enter this kingdom by forcing our way in or by marching in. We enter it on our knees through humility, but it's an everlasting kingdom. It's a kingdom of peace and righteousness and everlasting joy to all who would enter in. And you have that opportunity this morning. If you're not a part of this kingdom, you can be. You know, I wonder how Jesus must feel even today as we observe Palm Sunday. You know, that day was supposed to be a day of joy and triumph but it was also a day of grief and heartache for Jesus. It tells us again in 41 through 44, it says, And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known even thou, at least in this day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. Oh, if only he had known the things I have in store for you, the plans I have for you. If only you knew the plans that God has for you today. But it caused him grief because it tells us in verse 44, because thou knewest knewest not 
the time of thy visitation. You know, it grieves the heart of the Lord when he reaches out and he compels sinners to himself and he extends that offer of love and mercy and grace and freedom and people continually reject that and they pass up that day of visitation. You know, it's like a loving parent having to sit by and watch a rebellious child make decisions that are destroying their lives and you can't do anything about it. You can offer them love and support and hope and help, but if they resist... You have to let him go. That's how Jesus felt about so many in the crowd that day. They were rejecting what he was offering them. I believe Jesus feels the same way today. But you know, just the opposite of those who would reject Christ and cause him to weep, what happens when a sinner accepts that invitation? Well, we see a much different thing here when a sinner lays down his life and enters the kingdom of heaven it says that when that occurs it says that the very angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who comes to repentance you know this morning if you're unsaved you have a choice You can cause Jesus to weep or you can cause him to rejoice. The choice is yours. If the Lord is speaking to your heart, you need to recognize this is your day of visitation. Don't let it pass by. There's no guarantee that the Lord will ever visit you again. No promise that the Lord will ever speak to your heart again. So many in that crowd that day, they didn't realize this was the last time Jesus would ever pass through their city. And they missed that opportunity he had given him and many perished and have lost their souls in a devil's hell many today because they resisted or didn't recognize the day of their visitation the good news is jesus is here today you know this isn't just another sunday this isn't even just another palm sunday this day was foreordained by god himself You aren't here by accident. You're not here just for some random reason. God foreordained it and planned it for you to be a part of this multitude today. And you know, this could be your day of visitation. The Lord wants to make a triumphant entry into your heart and into your life today. You know, when Jesus rode into that city, the gates were wide open. He was invited in. Well, that's the same way Jesus will enter our hearts. He's not going to force his way in, but if we'll humble ourselves, yield to the Lord, open our hearts to the Lord, it says the King of glory will come in. Jesus will come in. He'll make a difference. He'll have that triumphant entrance into your heart this morning. You know, the Lord, the Word of God also tells us about a day coming in the future. It hasn't occurred yet, but it will Just as this day happened, according to the scriptures, everything in God's word that's prophesied will come to pass. There are some future events. It speaks of a day in the future when Jesus Christ will return. You know, the last time Jesus rode into that city, he came on a donkey and he came as a sacrifice for sin. The word of God tells us there's a coming a day when Christ will enter Jerusalem once again. But he won't be on a donkey. He won't be coming in peace. It says this time he'll be on a white horse. 
And he will come to execute judgment and punishment upon all the inhabitants of the world at that time. Those who rejected Jesus, those who missed their day of visitation, will be there to experience his wrath. This is not going to be a day of rejoicing or a joyous event. It will be a day of incredible and terrible judgment. We don't want to be here. But it also says he's coming back and he's going to be followed by a whole multitude of saints, a whole host of saints. That's the multitude we want to be a part of. It says when he comes back, and we know there will be a last battle, and it says Satan will be bound for a thousand years, cast into the bottomless pit, and then Jesus is going to establish an earthly kingdom. He's going to reign from Jerusalem, and it says in that day that all the saints of God will rule and reign with him. It's a blessed hope for every Christian, for every child of God, But again, if we want to be a part of his future kingdom, we need to be a part of his kingdom now. We need to let the kingdom of heaven rule and reign in our hearts. If you want to be a part of his future kingdom, you have to be among those faithful, forgiven followers. But we'll close with a beautiful promise in God's word. These are Christ's own words. This is a promise from Jesus himself. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in unto him and will sup with him and he with me. Throw open the gate of your heart this morning. Open the door of your heart. If the Lord is knocking on your heart, recognize that as your day of visitation. And if you open up to the Lord, the Lord will come in. He'll transform your life. He'll make you ready for heaven. And you can leave this place rejoicing and triumphant in your heart today because the Lord has entered in. We have an opportunity to seek the Lord today. What better day to be sanctified, filled with the Holy Spirit. This could be a day of rejoicing for everyone here. The Lord is here. He sends out that invitation. Let's sing 489 and come and let's seek the Lord.